Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. much about myself right now. Um, I'm here, I'm, Michael asked me if I would speak about Joseph Boys or about John Cage. I actually made a piece about 10 years ago that had some reference to Joseph Boys, but it was really driven by my ignorance about his practice, so I didn't feel that that was a very good beginning for talking about him, and I didn't really have the time to do further research. Uh, John Cage is somebody who's very important to me, but again, I'm not an expert on his work at all, but I'm currently immersed in the work of an artist named Deborah Hay, who's an American experimental choreographer. Uh, I've been working with her for about three years, and her work is profoundly influenced by her experience studying with John Cage, and I thought that that might be an interesting place to start. Uh, Deborah's a performer, a choreographer, a very influential teacher, and she's also a wonderful writer. And her most recent book is is called My Body, the Buddhist. And I thought that there might be an interesting connection, um, again, through Cage's ideas, because he, of course, was very influenced by Eastern thought. I met Deborah in 2006. I went to a performance on the advice of a friend in New York City at St. Mark's Church. And I'd heard of Deborah for many years and had, pretty early on in my experience, I decided that I wouldn't like her work very much, just based on what I had heard about it. In some ways, it sounded like a, a cliche of what people often refer to as self indulgent performance. But I went to this show, which was called O.O. It was a quintet, five extraordinary dancers. And the piece started, and I had an experience that I'd never had in the theater before, which was that I was absolutely captivated and very deeply moved by it, but at the same time quite detached from my feelings. And this was very confusing to me because I didn't suspend disbelief and just go along an emotional path, but I also didn't have my same critical hat on where I was watching the work and able to analyze it. Most important, I had no idea what was going on. I knew that there was a really beautiful logic behind every decision that was being made by the performers, 
it had the look of being completely improvised, but yet it looked like it had a very powerful motor behind it that was determining every single one of the choices. And most, I think, exciting for me was the way in which the performers responded to each other. Just a really unusual sense of listening to each other and sensitivity to each other's presence, as well as the audience. It was a performance that was not showy in the slightest way, but drew me into it, as I said, in ways that I really couldn't, I, I couldn't figure out what this was. So Deborah was at the performance, and I very brazenly approached her afterwards, sort of beat my way through a crowd of people who were wishing her well. It was the, it was the premiere of this piece, and asked her if she ever did any kind of workshop. She told me about something she does in Findhorn every year called the Solo Performance Commissioning Project. And it's a project where I think it's usually about 20 dancers from all around the world. Uh, actually, not necessarily dancers, anyone who's interested in performance, who has a performance practice of some kind. They go to Findhorn and they work with her for an 11-day process where she teaches a solo or the score behind a solo. She teaches a series of questions that inform the practice of the score and she coaches you one at a time in front of the other 19 in this impossible task, which is the performance of this piece. Uh, I did that once. I went back again and did it a second time. I invited her to Toronto to come and do a workshop for the community here. She came back the following year and actually made a group piece for Toronto Dance Theatre, which is my company. And then I gradually found myself starting to teach her practice because she had coached me in, in taking the dancers through the beginning stages of the process. And I went back this summer and learned another solo, which I'm actually performing next week. So I'm deeply immersed in it right now. So before I'll, I... Mostly I want to talk about the practice itself, but I'm going to give you just a little background on Deborah, if that's interesting. She was born in Brooklyn in 1941. She had pretty traditional modern dance training. And then she studied with Merce Cunningham, who was very important groundbreaking choreographer. He was the beginning of the turn away from what could be described as the heroic stage of modern dance under choreographers like Martha Graham or Jose Lamon. Uh, very important was that Cunningham worked with John Cage, who is probably the most unusual composer that anybody could think of, both in his practice and in the ways in which he's influenced the arts. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about John Cage. He, Asian, and I'm going to actually read you a little bit here, which is Asian cultures were a major influence on American composer John Cage. He began studying Indian philosophy and Zen Buddhism in the late 1940s, which led him to his ideas of indeterminacy and chance-controlled music which he began composing in the early 1950s. Cage adopted principles from the I Ching, the Chinese Book of Changes, 
that one consults after tossing a set of coins. And this book inspired his chance compositions, which were governed by the random operations that he got from reading the book. So he actually composed music according to these principles of indeterminacy that he found in the book. Um, his ideas about music were also influenced by Marcel Duchamp and the, the artists of the Dada movement and their idea that anything could become a work of art if you decided that it was. So therefore I put this on a pedestal in a museum and I call this conversation and then it be because it's designated as such. Those of you who know him probably know his famous sculpture. He signed Armut, which is actually a urinal. It was a great scandal. It was exhibited in Paris, I think in the maybe in the twenties. You can imagine that just to have a porcelain <laughs> exhibited in the salon. Uh, Cage is very interesting in that he took music beyond most of the traditional ideas about composition and he gave, gave silence an equal footing to sound. He was really interested in art following the processes of life rather than being the product of any kind of craft and artifice. And he also said, there's a famous story where he, one of his pieces of music was being played and it's like a 14-hour piece, I think, on a college campus, which consisted of just a series of uh, very loud tones, which contrasted with some soft tones. And they went on and on and on for a long, long time. And finally, somebody at about the 10th hour just picked up a desk and started smashing it around. And <laughs> people began to act out in cages there at the performance. And when it was sort of had all broken down, someone said, that's what you wanted, right? You wanted us to express ourselves. And he said, everything about my life has been trying to nullify the idea of self-expression. So, <laughs> they misunderstood. Why <laughs> they got it. Um, so silence is really important to him in the same way that stillness is important in movement, but we often don't privilege it in the same way. Um, he really wanted to take the artist's ego out of the equation, and that's why he chose to use these various chance methods to create the work. And his most notorious piece is a piece called uh, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. And I think the original performance was by the composer David Tudor, and Tudor sits at the piano with the music on top, and he opens the cover of the piano, and he puts his hands in his lap. And four minutes and 33 seconds later, he picks up the score and bows and leaves. And the response is, well, he, there was nothing. It was silence. Nothing happened. And Cage's response is that there was an incredible universe of sound. There was every sound that happened in that room, but he was creating the circumstances where people would notice what was happening. Now, unfortunately, because most of us think if you go to a music performance, you're going to wait for the music to start, we don't really give ourselves permission to notice those things. And I think with, for most of the audience, people probably just got quite annoyed at it. But now that people know 
the subtext. It's actually very popular. <laughs> I have a great sense of humor. If you want to go on YouTube sometime, there's a piece which is called, um, I think it's called Water, um, Water Walk. You can find it on YouTube, and it's the most lovely, whimsical performance. I think it's like on the Ed Sullivan show or something, so it must have been the weirdest performance <laughs> they've ever had on that show. And he has every kitchen appliance and noisemaker, and things are mechanized, and it's, it, it's very Dada in the way it transpires, and it's also, it sounds really interesting. Um, I'm going to read you an autobiographical statement about Cage, and then we're going to move on. Uh, he talks about when he was a student. He said, It was at the Cornish school that I became aware of Zen Buddhism, which later, as part of Oriental philosophy, took the place for me of psychoanalysis. I was disturbed both in my private life and in my public life as a composer. I could not accept the academic idea that the purpose of music was communication, because I noticed that when I conscientiously wrote something sad, people and the critics were often apt to laugh. <laughs> I, I determined to give up composition unless I could find a better reason for doing it than communication. And I found this answer from, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Gira Sarabe, an Indian singer and tabla player, who had said, the purpose of music is to sober and quiet the mind, thus making it susceptible to divine influences. I also found in the writings of Ananda K. Kumaraswamy that the responsibility of the artist is to imitate nature in her manner of operation. I became less disturbed and went back to work. So that was his epiphany when he realized that he didn't need to be creating meaning for people. Back to Deborah Hay. She was part of a group of people that were doing a very famous composition class with a composer named Robert Dunn, which was the beginnings of something called Judson Dance Theatre. This was in the early 60s in New York City, and Judson Dance Theatre was, a, I would say, a, a movement that exploded in the 60s in dance, but its repercussions are only being fully felt right now because there's been a resurgence of interest in Europe with a lot of choreographers. And those of you who work in the arts know that in Europe it's much easier to do research because there's a lot more money to do things. It's very difficult for dance artists in North America, certainly in New York, to do that kind of thing because there's, there's no support for work that, that really questions conventions at all. So the Judson Dance Theater was really interested in playing with some of Cage's ideas using chance processes and this notion that art was going to imitate nature, the processes of nature. They were also really interested in this idea that dance didn't need to be performed by professional dancers. They recognized the beauty in any kind of movement done by any kind of person. The members of this group included Steve Paxton, who's the inventor of contact improvisation. Some of you may have some experience in that. 
Patricia Brown, who was the beginning of a very beautiful form of dance that's come to be called release dance, and Yvonne Rayner, who went on to become a, a really important experimental filmmaker. And she has a famous manifesto, which she calls the No Manifesto, which summarizes a lot of their ideas. And I will read you these various prohibitions. She says, no to spectacle, no to virtuosity, no to transformations and magic and make-believe, no to the glamour and transcendency of the star image, no to the heroic, no to the anti-heroic, <laughs> no to trash imagery, no to involvement of spectator and performer, no to style, no to camp, no to seduction of spectator by the wiles of the performer. I love that one. No to eccentricity and no to moving or being moved. So that's a lot of no. <laughs> and that pretty much shut down everything that was happening on stage in dance. Those of you who, who follow dance know that early modern dance was so much about self-expression. Uh, it was... Uh, it was very much idea-based in terms of the subject matter. It dealt with uh, issues surrounding women, a lot of issues around discoveries that Freud had made, uh, psychology, politics. They're very left-wing, a lot of these choreographers. And this group, the Judson Dance Theater, wanted to leave that behind completely and take away the control of the author, which began what's still happening, a huge debate about authorship within choreography. So, let me check the clock. Ah! So, Deborah worked with <laughs> untrained dancers in task-oriented works for a long time. She left New York, really dropped out of the professional dance scene. She moved to Vermont, where she spent six years on a commune. And she began to develop a concept of her own practice, which she calls the cellular body. She made circle dances for groups of people for which there were no audiences. They were completely participatory. In 1976, she moved to Austin, and she continued her work teaching and creating community-based work. Once a year, she would make a huge piece, sometimes for 50 people, which would be experiments around the ideas that she was developing about the cellular body. And from these huge pieces, she started to make solos for herself. Now, this is a really important thing. Deborah is an extremely crafty person. Her, her work and her practice is, for me and for almost anyone I know who's worked with her, has been extremely inspiring, transformative, but she is absolutely upfront about how she works. She's making money doing it. I mean, she believes in it, but that's how she makes her living. She, every person that she works with, she's using that person in order to develop her ideas. And her justification for that comes back to her concept of the cellular body and the fact that when I see you I see you practicing what I'm practicing. It doesn't really matter if it's true or not. I choose to believe that I'm seeing you in my body. So the practice itself, and I'll come back to this a little more, because I'm not saying this in the 
incredibly clear way, um, really has to do with noticing. She started to perform a series of solos which began to gather attention. And this is like 20 years after her career has begun. So she's really been a struggling artist. And then in 2004, she just, through serendipity, she was invited by a group of five dancers in New York, like very accomplished technical dancers who were famous performers in the downtown scene there. They asked her to make a dance for them. So she took one of her solos, which she adapted into a group piece, and worked with them over a period of, I think, six weeks on these questions that inform her own practice. And the piece became a huge success. So she went from being somebody who had pretty much been in the wilderness for you know, close to 40 years, just making do with workshops, just grabbing hold of whatever she could do. All of a sudden, the stars were aligned and the world was ready for what she talked about. So that in itself is a very inspiring thing to me, that somebody would commit themselves that, that rigorously to one idea that they believed in. And, yeah, with, with, with no guarantee that it was really going to take them anywhere, other than, as I said, she's crafty. She found ways to to feed herself and her daughter, and that was really at the base of it. And one of the ways she makes money is through the solo commissioning project. She invites you pay her to do it. It's an interesting thing. You need to raise the money from your community to do it. You can't pay for it yourself. And the idea is that you involve various people in the experience, which means they're probably going to be more likely to want to come and see the performance. Every time someone presents one of these solos, there's this huge list of names from all over the world because the patrons of all 20 choreographers are listed. And they're really beautiful stories that attach... Uh, which I don't really have time to tell you about now. Maybe afterwards we can go through. Here's a list of what Deborah looks for in a performer, which will give you some clues as to what she's interested in herself. First one is an ability to laugh at your serious intentions at any given moment. And that's a tool that you remember to use. Number two is that you've explored self-expression and found it limiting as a means to create performance continuity. The third one is you are drawn to explore movement in all its variety, either through a cultivated or ingrained absence of discrimination. Number four, and this is huge, you are not content with partial practice. So it's an all or nothing experience. The fifth is you want your process to be continually challenged. Number six is your respect for the intelligence of your whole body is unqualified. In performance, your non-attachment to professional training in dance or techniques in acting is a source of ongoing insight and delight. 
Now that's really big for, for anybody who has technical experience. Uh, she talks about in her process the self-regulated transcendence of the choreographed body which means at all time you're keeping a consciousness of all of the inherited traditions that are in your body, all of the defaults that you have, and any moment when you might fall out of this practice itself and revert to something that makes you feel interesting or beautiful or strong or powerful or threatening, just all of the various guises that performers uh, enjoy. Moving down through the list, you are without fear of appearing foolish in your capacity to violate form in order to recognize where and why it exists. Integral to your experience of performance is an inclusive regard for the presence of your audience. And finally, you are becoming or are already skilled and monitoring your own performance. What this means is that you've developed a capacity to witness yourself from more than one perspective at once, not as a judge, but as a guide in the practice of attention. In My Body, the Buddhist, her most recent book, she says that everything important she's ever learned she learned from her body, and she really lives that way. One of her mantras always, she says, the whole body at once, the teacher. And it's something she says over and over again. So I'll tell you a little bit about the practice. So the essence of the practice is noticing. So in some ways, you could describe it as a, as a performed meditation. The first thing she says is get what you need, nothing less. So you're always conscious of yourself. It's a series of questions which are in essence tools to keep you as a performer in the present moment. To give you the ability to, as she says, to witness what you're doing. To be part of this to be able to combine the past, the present, and the future in the moment in which you're performing. And the visual field, the use of the eyes, play a huge role in this work. So we have the whole body at once, the teacher. She talks about the whole body at once, inviting being seen, taking in information. Now, this is a very different idea in performance, this notion of inviting being seen. Because the performer traditionally practices something, perfects it, uh, goes on stage, has rehearsed it over and over and over again to do it as beautifully or as profoundly as possible. And then the moment of going on stage, there's often a process where adrenaline is released. You get caught up in the adrenaline the experience begins. I mean, dancers talk about not remembering one thing that happened from the beginning of the performance until the end of the performance. 
They can go into a state where they are muscle memories happening. They're on automatic pilot. Sometimes that can work really beautifully. Sometimes it can be less beautiful or less exciting. It really depends in some ways on the performer and it depends on your taste and your values as an audience member. Another, and I'll come back to this idea of inviting being seen because it is very much part of the cellular body as a concept. And I'm sure I'm in some things are making a little sense and some things aren't, but what I'm going to do is continue to circle around some of these ideas because it's very much a, a tapestry of concepts that are threaded together which keep coming back to the same thing, this note, this idea of inviting being seen in the practice of noticing, stepping up to seeing in order to be seen, stepping up to see where you are, in essence, in order to be seen surrendering where you are. So surrender is a huge part of it. It's extremely wordy, she talks all the time. And one of the things she says over and over and over again is don't think your way into the practice. Just get moving and call it. Everything starts with what if. Her most important question is what if, and it's said not what if, it's what if, because she's from Brooklyn, what if every single cell in your body at once <laughs> could surrender the pattern of facing a single direction. What if every one of 300 trillion cells in your body at once could surrender the pattern of facing a single direction? And it's just a pattern. You're not fixed. You behave sometimes as though you are, but you're not. And everything comes back into the body. She talks about the lab. So... It's what if every single cell in my body at once could surrender the pattern of facing a single direction in the lab. And the lab is the safety net. Because if it was the whole universe, your brain would explode. You'd stop. <laughs> so you put a frame. So if I was performing here, the lab would be the ceiling, the floor, the walls, all of you, every object in the room. And that would be my score in some way. So, in essence, these are tools to keep you interested as a performer in actually staying in the moment in which you are. They're extremely risky because they're asking you to never prepare. And this is the hardest thing because it's so counterintuitive for performers. There's no time to explore an idea, to develop it, to invent. There's only time to experiment with the actual questions that govern the practice. So I'm going to go through just some of these items from the mantra, which maybe give you a little clearer idea, and then I'll speak briefly about one of the scores. It's the whole body at once, the whole body in question. Notice the feedback and let it go. Get what you need, nothing less. Use each other. 
I see you and I see you practicing what I'm practicing. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, but I rest in the comfort of your practice. Right? So your practice inspires my practice. When I look at you, I see you inviting being seen in the question, your whole body at once in the question, what if every single one of the 300 trillion cells in my body at once could see the way that my eyes see? What if seeing is like eating? And what if my visual field is a means through which movement can come to me without me having to invent it, without me having to plan anything in advance, without me having to stick with an idea to develop it? What if I'm able to, as a performer, risk what in essence could be complete antipathy from the audience? And when you actually perform this work, there's this beautiful thing that happens, because with any audience, um, I guess we sort of start this way, and then as the performance begins, some people move forward and some people move back. And it's like it's sort of the stops on an organ gradually. And, and, and then some people's attention increases and other... And then <laughs> the, the dread little blast of LED light happens and all of that is there. And, and she still performs. And someone asked her once, they said, what... How do you feel, you know, 40 years later, having invested in this extremely rigorous, it, and it's a daily practice. And I should mention, when you, when you learn one of these solos, after this 11-day period where she coaches you, you sign a contract to perform the piece by yourself in a studio every day for three months before you allow anyone to see it. So it is, in fact, a daily practice of developing skills and noticing and in all of these questions. I forget what I was saying. Um, Some of the other things she says. She talks about American seeing. That's been very interesting for us. I've never really considered seeing as cultural in that way, but when she worked with us, she felt that we were all a little bit light in our visual touch. And we really had to practice an unabashed directness in seeing, yeah? And what she called American seeing. Or maybe I called it American seeing. (laughs) That's where we started. How are you guys doing? Is, all right. All right. So some of the other things, I when I see when I see you, your practice inspires my practice because I can choose I can choose to I can choose to see you in so many different ways. I can choose to see you. I can choose to see you inviting being seen every cell in your body at once, perceiving all of space change as you move through it. So I see you doing that, inviting me to perceiving all the space change as you move through it. But I'm not seeing you over there. I'm seeing you in my body. 
you practice this with a group of people and I'm not sure in, I, in any kind of medi- if there's a collective meditation practice where people are actually exchanging information. Uh, I don't know enough about it. I'd be very curious. Maybe we could talk about it at the end a little bit. But for a group of performers, there's an extraordinary breaking down of barriers that happens because... Um, through this process of really, if every single thing that you're choosing to do within the score itself, and I'll talk about that in a minute, is governed by, by something that, that someone else or something else in the room inspires in you through your visual field. And you can use that in a broader sense. It can be what you're hearing, certainly. <clears throat> It, at a certain point, through the practice, as cerebral as it sounds, there is this very and initially shocking place where your body begins to do things which appear to you as, as completely spontaneous. That you are moving with no with no plan whatsoever. And it often happens very quickly and just in small moments, but when it does happen within a group of performers, it's about as beautiful as watching like a flock of birds making decisions at a particular moment and you know that you know, they're not going, okay, I guess it's time to turn left, right? (laughs) There's something about their sensitivity through their bodies that allows them to do that. With each of that, each of the solos, there's a score, and uh, afterwards, if people want to have a look at this score, they're welcome to have a look at it. This piece is called... At once, it's the one I'm working on right now, and there are a number of. How are we doing? Okay, I'm going to talk for about another five minutes, and then we can talk together. There are three questions specific to this, which summarize a lot of the things I've talked about. The first one is, and this is <laughs> slightly layered. What if, what if where I am is what I need is not an examination of what I need, but a reminder to remember the question, what if where I am is what I need? And that's a really important one. You know, what, like, and, and for dancers who get the, who, a mnemonic has had the experience, right? It can be a prison sentence in a, it, when you're actually having to go and do something that requires that level of attention every single day, that level of commitment every day. And the question, what if where I am is what I need, in terms of a group coming together in practice, is a pretty subversive, pretty subversive approach. Can you just repeat that one again? Yeah. It's the idea of what if where I am is what I need. And, and her thing is, like, what if the question is not about what you need, 
but it's about what if where you are is what you need, and it's a reminder to consider that question. So not to to, to get to go down the rabbit hole, you know, and which again takes you out of the moment that you're in because you're thinking, oh, what would I? And we see that on stage with performers. What's for, what am I going to do for dinner? I know this so well. I'm doing, you know, I'm the ninth swan in the back of the row, and here I am, and <laughs> right. But how wonderful if that person was. What if where I am is what I need. <laughs> The second one is, what if dance is how I practice my relationship with my whole body at once in relationship to the space where I am dancing, in relation to each passing moment, in relationship to my audience? And what if the depth of that question is on the surface? And the third one, I won't go through it again. Actually, I will, because it, 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 it extends this. What if my choice to surrender the pattern, and it's just a pattern of facing a single direction, or fixing on a singularly coherent idea, feeling, or object when I am dancing, is a way of remembering to see where I am in order to surrender where I am? And what if how I see changes me? There are a couple of reminders within this. One is remove hesitation and reconsideration. And the second is to remove your sequencing from the sequence of movement directions, which means that once you've memorized the sequence of things that you have to do, you need to somehow find a way to have the sequence dissolve so that you are having that experience from the very beginning each time. This dance is called At Once and it's about joy and sorrow at once. And it's very simple. In the past, the dances have had quite specific spatial patterns in them but with this you're pretty much on your own you have to her idea is that you choreograph it yourself within the consideration of all of these ideas so working with Deborah and it might be more interesting to have a discussion than to have me try and without you seeing any of it um, I'll just tell you some of the ways in which I don't think I'm going to tell you anything else because oh no, here we go. Here's the last page. Um, some interesting things. There are a lot of what we call alternate techniques in movement, and she doesn't call her work a technique at all. She calls it a performance practice. It's very different from things like body mind centering or skin or releasing technique or authentic movement techniques, which often happen. A big part of it is working through imagery and with the eyes closed and going quite deep inside. Her work is completely open to the space. 
at all times. And it, it's pretty high brain in a lot of ways. It really does privilege the visual field. In some ways, you could consider it anti-performance, but I consider it subversive in the way it draws attention to a lot of conventions around performance and spoils things like the whole myth of the performer and the way the performer finds comfort for themselves within their within their ego and their what can be described as a third person sometimes and we see it all the time it's that and I'm sure I'm exhibiting aspects of it right now because I'm presenting myself to you as you know in, in front of a group it's it's that person that you become when you're somehow showing or presenting uh, it kills the idea of fixed focus which for dancing is really important because most of the time if you're doing anything difficult at all right anything that involves your balance you're actually having to move and turn around the first thing you're going to do is is lock your gaze on something and then go inside your body to decide what technique you, you go through a litany of technical things that you need to do in order to start that and it also it also draws attention to many sort of strange aspects of dancerly behavior there's that sort of wiener physicality that happens, you know, like how hot dogs are in a package and they've got a membrane around them. It's, it's a sort of, like if you're not dancing, you just stand still and, and because you've trained so muscularly, you're basically like sucking everything into your body in that way. And you see it next time you go to a dance performance, you watch, and it also, and I think this is most important, it's a good term. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, it also it it draws attention to the dishonesty of implying meaning where there is none. Yeah, you know, you're looking on a diagonal, and you're dancing, and you're feeling it, and it means nothing, but maybe it should. So. <laughs> you know <laughs> like all those like, like poo poo faces that, that come with conventions oh you know all the sweet pain of which are, again it's not the person it's something that you just put on top of it so these are many things that she's questioning she's interested in this in the beauty of the presence and the attention of every person in their way. And I didn't finish the thing I was saying. Did I say that when I was telling the story about how does she feel when... Right, I didn't finish it. Okay. Someone said, how do you feel when you're performing and people look bored or angry or frustrated or they're leaving and she said I look at them and I think they're doing the best that they can 
which is actually a, a, a slightly harsh statement. You can look at it from either direction. But I don't think she means it as a judgment. I think she means it that, in fact, and, and everyone is, which is actually quite freeing for a performer. Because everyone who comes to the theater, everybody who comes to a performance, you know, unless they're... They're a colleague who's hoping the show's going to be terrible, you know, who's come to jeer at you, but that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Most people come because they want to have an experience. They, they want to somehow have, have their dialogue with the world enriched to some extent. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge commitment on the part of any audience member. The same way this is like a huge commitment on your part and it's a risk that you're actually here while I'm talking about something most of you haven't heard of but anyway I'm without summing up at all I will just finish there and I would be really happy to answer any questions that any of you have or clarify anything I think that's maybe um, yeah. So, with especially with the necessary daily practice yeah. of it, how have you noticed it affect your own personal practices aside from dance? Right. Or is there not? Yeah. No. It's been it's been really uh, transformational. It's changed my choreography a lot. It's given me a methodology for working with for communicating much, much better with the people I work with. And it's also, this is really exciting for me, I've always been attracted to a certain kind of dancer with a certain quality of presence and movement, like Monica. And uh, if the person has it, great, but if they don't, I've never known how to actually find that. And now I have very specific tools as a director that I can use to um, to elicit that kind of presence from somebody. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably why I was attracted to her work initially, was seeing this thing and going, how did she achieve that in so many people? Could you talk a little bit more about the, the idea of inviting being seen? Right, okay. <clears throat> Could I try and show you it? So, I mean, generally, if, if I'm, as a dancer, I'm performing, I'm actually showing you something, right? And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm showing you a series of things that I've... And there's my poo-poo face, right? Because I'm like, right? So, yeah, I'm giving meaning to something that has absolutely no meaning at all. Right, default number one. So if I'm inviting you to see now, I don't... So what I can actually do 
in this context is is oh, I'm slightly embarrassed. I'm not really inviting being seen. What I'm doing is I'm taking my movement from my visual field, but if I wasn't quite so shy, now I think I'm doing it a little bit better, which is I'm allowing you to have some sense within within this space of my body, so I'm not actually protecting myself in terms of the movement that I'm doing. But, and also I'm seeing you, and I'm seeing your body, and I'm feeling the energy of your bodies as, as I'm performing. And I think the most important thing is not editing the people as you're, as you're dancing. So there's, there's less of a wall between you and the performers. I'm not sure if, if there was any distinction between the two ways of doing things. Yeah? And I'm not suggesting I'm a master at it. It's something that I'm trying to do. Does it make you feel different? How does it feel different when you're performing in the other? It feels different in that I am absolutely here in the room with you. And I couldn't possibly have done that just out of nowhere. The first thing, I wouldn't have made eye contact with one person in the room. That's a huge part of it. That's a really big part of it. So does it flow into when you're talking about inviting someone else into your body? I think that that's a part of it. That's a part of it. So it's kind of like dissolving, dissolving of boundaries, and it's just like one big mm-hmm. field that, that everybody's existing in. I think maybe that's mm-hmm. part of her notion of the cellular body, mm-hmm. so that it you know it breaks down into ideas around new physics, which is eventually no matter what the casings that exist around your body you know I move this pencil and it's a, it's affecting everyone's physicality in this room and in fact on the other side of the universe in some ways like at the lo- level of subatomic particles and certainly in the intelligence of cells It's really like this, this notion of not protecting yourself, like in the dance training it's so ingrained that like, to get better and better and improve and improve and improve, right. and then it's this like really hard case that we, like, we end up with, right. um, and that, that you can see on stage, right, uh, in a lot of performers, and it's like that kind of like an untraining, you know, to, to open up those, those I think that's, layers. Yeah, that's one of her ideas. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's a degree of compassion within it. It's, it's developing compassion for yourself as a performer 
and simultaneously compassion for the audience that you're engaging with. Does it still have any room for what you've learned before studying with her? Yeah. Or is it- yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She's actually a very good choreographer when she makes up dances. She's very skilled at, you know, working with rhythm and working with space, really unusual patterns. Because I think initially I thought it was going to be like a very kind of free experience. But there's, there's a real rigor in the way she makes her own dances. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to take a risk here. Yeah, um, sure. I'm a composer, and I was just mm-hmm. wondering, with you practicing this and studying with her, yeah. what advice could you maybe give me to help me as a music writer understand? I mean, I can understand this, it's pretty powerful, mm-hmm. but maybe in, in music, creating music, it's, um, I don't know, do you have any way I could understand it or what I could do, what I could do in music to do the same thing? Um, I think probably some of the parallels that exist between her work that she's really distilled from John Cage's work, I think maybe exploring Cage more could be really interesting in that way. But also the... I mean, having the physical experience of, of this kind of practice, I think... You know, if you're interested in meditation and you're interested in different ways of um, developing skill in staying in the present moment, let's say, you know, as hugely challenging as that can be. Yeah, and the physical experience is great. Go into a workshop with her. <laughs> um, do these performances happen with any music? They can. That's the interesting thing when you when you make the when you make your adaptation of the solo, you can add pretty much whatever you want. You can add text and costuming and lighting and music. And the, the first time I did one of her solos was a piece called News. And I costumed it, and we did quite an elaborate lighting design. And then about half an hour before the first performance, I just cut everything out because I felt that it was getting in the way of what the piece was actually doing. Uh, But this new solo that I'm doing has a lighting design. I'm actually going to use some music in it as well. Yeah, some recorded music, yeah. There's also, there's a lot of vocalizing Mm -hmm. within it. There's usually a little text, often some storytelling, which is completely, like one of the solos, a piece called All Crane For You, you're in the middle of a very complicated physical task, and then you need to pull a rhyming limerick out of your visual field and it just comes from <laughs> which is actually really risky because you always say something really sexual <laughs> you're not, because you're not filtering <laughs> <laughs> it sounds yeah. a lot like non-idiomatic improvisation in uh, music okay. and, and it's maybe that hasn't she hasn't worked with 
musicians doing that, and maybe it would only work in the sort of sh workshop mm -hmm. phase, but it, the um, just kind of spontaneously playing, letting go of training, right. and, and especially playing with others where you're absolutely influenced and in hearing each other, right. um, but not looking for the harmonic relationship where, you know, trying to pull out a melody or anything. But there's, it, anyway, the sky's the limit. And doing that with movement in the same space would be really amazing, I would think. Yeah, definitely. I'm just going to check the time because I think we might be. Um, it's half past eight. So maybe if, if someone has one more question, we could control we'll things. One more question and we'll finish. And yeah. Then you can hang out a yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Sorry? I'm performing it uh, next week on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. At the, I actually brought some flyers, you know, which I can leave you. <laughs> if you want, when I come and see how successful I am <laughs> in the practice. But, you know, it's very interesting because um, it, it gives you an extraordinary amount of courage. Um, and I think that's the the three months of if you can if you have the discipline to to go through this quite you know there's no music there's no there's nothing to repeat or refine or perfect you just start from zero every time and all you have is your visual field and these questions to keep in mind. And it's impossible to do. She says that. The whole idea is that it's absolutely, it's a series of impossible tasks within a kind of game structure. And you just get started. And she says, always, you just go ready, fire, aim. Like every time you're ready, fire, aim. So it's the risk, and you step up to everything when you're going from one section to another and the more like sort of feeling states within the work you can't slow down and consider you just go you just step up to the next one so it's an yeah it's an interesting skill so we should be different then yeah yeah it's a, that's really important to her that there's there's the whole idea of live performance is that there's no repetition in live performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there'll be some sim similarities, but each night will be a little different. Right. Thank you for listening to me.